Good morning. Welcome to this reading of God's Holy Word. We'll be looking this morning at two readings. And if you want to follow them with me, if you grab a Bible from the chairwell in the seats in front of you, the first reading will be found on page 68. And we'll be looking or continuing our look at Exodus uh, at chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And when we've read that, I will direct you to the next page in the next reading. So starting at chapter 11, the plague on the firstborn. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Sorry, eyesight problems. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the first firstborn of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officers of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord has said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. If you would like to turn to the next page in chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 21 to 36. So chapter 12, beginning at verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, 
dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the firstborn, the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passes over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped the Lord. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat at the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs or wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and their clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Shall we pray together? Father, as we come to these words of yours in scripture, we know that we're treading on holy ground. And we pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And hearts that are not hardened, but which receive your word with joy and respond to you with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many countries have national myths, often reinforced by a national day of celebration that somehow recalls, remembers, points to the origins of their culture, of their nationhood. 
the United States of America is a key point and example, isn't it? Fourth of July, Independence Day, the day when they threw off the hated shackles of the English oppressor uh, and became a new kind of nation, governed by new kinds of laws, not under some uh, all-powerful king, but under rational, humane principles for living. That's the American myth, at least. A myth, by the way, doesn't have to be something that's untrue. It's a story that gives meaning to life, a, a, a story that gives identity. It's one of the striking things about uh, British culture that we don't really have such a myth. I mean, most of us don't celebrate sort of William the Conqueror Day on the 16th of October, the anniversary of the Battle of Hastings or anything like that. Uh, but lots of nations have those sorts of days. In Australia, it's the 26th of January, the date of the founding of Sydney. In fact, if you go and look through a list of national days, one of the things that you'll see is that uh, many of them make some, re make some reference to Britain, but generally it's independence from Britain that is being celebrated. And there's a story there, isn't there? And maybe in some ways that's become our national myth. The former oppressor trying to make good, trying to find a way of understanding uh, what it means for us to be a nation in the world in the days after empire and after colonialism. The, these verses in Exodus, particularly in chapter 12, are the founding myth of the people of God. It's not that they're not true. These things really happened. But the significance of them is bigger than just some events that happened. They define who the people of God are. What it means for them to be a nation. If you look through chapter 12 with me, you'll see that um, even before it's happened, most national days are kind of post-rationalized. You see something's happened and you say, yes, this is the thing that gives us meaning. But for Israel, it happens before. So chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is the beginning. This is the start. Look at verse 14 of chapter 12. This is a day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord your God will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. If you flick over the page, or at least in my Bible, it's flicking over the page uh, to, to verse uh, 43, you'll see again that these are instructions for something that is to be done year on year on year. This day of the year, every year, you eat this meal, you remember what God did, this is who you are. You have been established as a nation that God has taken out of Egypt. Now, if you've been with us uh, over the last few Sunday mornings as we've looked at the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, that'll make perfect sense to you. But if you're not, here's a quick recap. God's people have been 400 years in Egypt as slaves. They've been trodden under the Egyptian jackboot. Well, it's a sandal, but they've been trodden down, oppressed, Forced labor, 
with no rights. They have been beaten, they have been harshly treated, they have been subjugated. And at the very beginning of the book, God hears them crying out in their misery to him, and he remembers the promise he made to the first Israelite, Abraham. Remembers the promises he made to Abraham and to his children, that he would give them a land, that he would bless them, that he would make them into a great nation. And this is the moment at which they are made into a great nation. You see, I think that's the significance in one sense of of them plundering the Egyptians, which was uh, right at the end of of what we heard read, wasn't it? In in verse uh, 36. So they plundered the Egyptians. They come out of Egypt bearing spoils like a conquering army, like a nation that has conquered another nation. These are not simply slaves who have been let go. This is a nation that has conquered Egypt. And yet they haven't lifted a finger to do it. God has done it all for them. Back in chapter 3, God says to this man Moses, who he has miraculously rescued from Pharaoh's planned infanticide, a means of genocide of the Israelite people. Moses has been rescued from that from the very jaws of death, brought up in Pharaoh's own household. God is at work to set his people free. And in chapter three, he says to Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, this is what the Lord God says. Let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say in response? I do not know the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And then the chapters intervening between chapter 4, where Pharaoh says that to Moses, and now chapter 12, when this last terrible judgment falls, God has been showing Egypt, look, this is who I am. I am the supreme God. I made everything. Everything in heaven on earth is subject to me. And so each of what we tend to call the plagues that falls on Egypt, uh, is really a demonstration of God's supremacy over the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. The Nile was the source of life for Egypt, and God turns it in a moment into blood. And blood is, is, is the symbol of death, isn't it? It is life poured out. And here again, we encounter blood in a terrible way. In Exodus chapter 12, the very first plague speaks of what will come if Pharaoh will not simply recognize who God is. I do not know the Lord, says Pharaoh. Know him, says Moses. He's supreme over the Nile. Uh, All the uh, plagues that follow, in one way or another, reflect God's power over the Egyptian gods. Stephen explained that to us. Uh, And so it's no coincidence that the last plague before this one is the plague that comes in chapter 10, the plague of darkness. Many of us, if we were interested in ancient Egypt, as I was as a child, will have grown up knowing that there was a supreme God in Egypt, the chief of the Egyptian gods. Perhaps his name comes to you already. Ra, the sun god, led in his chariot through the heavens every day. And that supreme god stops shining. God shows that he is supreme even over the sun, even over the source of light and warmth. 
And yet, tragically, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He will not recognize God for who he is. So at the end of chapter 10, we read this, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Which for those of you who know your Old Testament of the Bible will know that that is a truth about the living God, that anyone who sees his face will die. He says that to Moses later in Exodus. You cannot look on my face, for anyone who sees my face will die. But Pharaoh puts himself in the place of God and says to Moses, if you see my face, you will die. He believes that he is the one who has the power of life and death. He believes that he is in control. He believes that he has supreme power. He still will not recognize that the Lord is the one who gives life. And as he will discover to his bitter cost, the one who takes life too. Pharaoh will not recognize that he is subject to God. And so, chapter 11, verse 4, Moses said, This is what the Lord says about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, that is the very highest in the land, to the son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, to the very lowest. Death will come to every family. It's a tragic story of avoidable judgment in one sense. And it's a story that weaves its way through the whole of the Bible, it's fundamental to the Judeo-Christian view of reality that there is a God and he made human beings in his image to know him, to love him, to worship him. But we've turned away from him and the consequence of turning away from the one who gives life, well, what would you expect it to be? It is death. That's the warning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God puts a tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree of divine prerogative, if you like, that the humans stretch out their hands and take to themselves, saying, if you like, we'll be God. You don't need to be God for us. In fact, get out of our universe that you made. And God says, if you eat of that tree, you will die. And they eat of the tree. And God casts them out of his presence and says, the, the world is cursed because of what you have done. And you and all your children and your children's children will die. There is a God of justice. And one day, every single one of us will stand before him and give an account to him for what we have done with the life he gave us. And that is why in this last plague, there is something very and terribly different about it. In all the other plagues, God just passes over the area of Egypt where the people of Israel live. There's, there's no effect on them. Even with the plague of darkness, even when the sun appears to stop shining in the whole of Egypt, we read that in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, 
they had light. But this plague is different. It's like that day of judgment has been brought forward in history. God sends the destroyer, the one who brings people to final account through the land. This unstoppable force of judgment is coming on Egypt. For the Egyptians in that moment, God says, tomorrow is judgment day. And every firstborn son in every household, the one on whom the whole family's hopes for the future rest, will die. But the Israelites are not simply free from this plague. They too are subject to it. And the story of the Passover is not a story of God showing one kind of justice to one group of people and another kind of justice to another group of people. Actually, Israelite and Egyptian in Exodus chapter 12 are equal before God. There's no ethnic preference. There's, there's nothing about the identity of any individual Israelite. That means that they are immune from what is coming. This terrible judgment would strike their houses, but for one thing. He tells them, you are to take a lamb, and that lamb will die in the place of the firstborn son in each household. So you are to take that lamb, and you are to slaughter it, and put its blood in a bowl, and dip a bunch of this herb called hyssop into that bowl. It's interesting that Moses gives us that little detail, isn't it? Why do we need to know what the name of the plant is when so much is at stake? But nonetheless, we do. Uh, take a, a, a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the bowl, and mark the, uh, the door frames and the lintel of your home. And when the destroyer comes through Egypt, he will see that a death has already taken place in your house, and so he will pass over. It's a brutal thing to say, but there is no house in Egypt where there has not been a death the next day. And the death has either been the firstborn son of the household or the lamb that God has provided. The innocent substitute for the one who would otherwise face the judgment of God. That is the founding story of God's people God provides a substitute, a lamb, to die in the place of his people who would otherwise die at the hands of his judgment that is coming. And the only safe place to be, if you're an Israelite firstborn on that day, the only safe place to be if you're an Israelite full stop is inside a house that has been marked in that way with blood. So you slaughter the lamb, you take the body inside, you eat it. Everyone has to eat the lamb. And justice, judgment, passes by. Every home has a death. God's mercy is not simply him ignoring his justice. He doesn't sweep anything under the carpet. He provides a substitute for the lives of his people. 
And year on year, the people sit down together, they eat a lamb, the children ask a question, what does this mean? This is how God set us free from Egypt. He passed over our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The lambs died so that we didn't. That is the founding myth of the people of God. It is true, but it explains their identity. God provides a substitute. Someone, something, a lamb, to die in the place of the people. The blood is a sign for you on your houses. The only safe place to be on that judgment night is indoors. But that founding myth of Israel is also the founding myth of the people of God, the church. It is this story that is fundamental to the Christian understanding of what it means to be the people of God, of who we are. So let me take you to the beginning of John's Gospel. And these are very familiar uh, words, at least the beginning of John's Gospel is very familiar to us, isn't it, from Christmas. So I've got so many bits of sticky things in my Bible. Right, here we go. So we're familiar, aren't we, with um, John chapter 1. If you've ever been to a Christmas service, you've probably heard this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. But then the first person who's introduced in John's Gospel is not that Word, not that light, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning, to that light, concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John's gospel actually begins with, not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. Uh, and John the Baptist's ministry is to point to Jesus. Uh, and so John appears then in, in verse uh, 19 um, well, he appears uh, sooner than that, but there's this sort of questioning of John. People say, are you the Messiah? And he says, I'm not. I've just come to point to the one who is. And the first thing we see about Jesus in John's gospel is John's testimony about Jesus he says, I'm here to testify about another one, but we still don't meet Jesus. We don't meet Jesus until verse 29 of John chapter 1. And this is what happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next time we see Jesus is the next day, John 1.35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When Jesus was passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. What does John want you to know about Jesus right from the start? He is the person to whom the Passover was always pointing. If you flip to the end of John's gospel, to John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, look, I've written this book, I've told you all these things about Jesus so that you can know this, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the one that John was pointing forward to, and he is the Son of God. 
Put those two things together. What do you have? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The Lamb dies in the place of the firstborn. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's firstborn. And the identity of the church is based on this. That God has intervened in human history with judgment day looming. He has intervened in human history in the end not by giving a lamb in place of the firstborn, but by giving his firstborn in place of all of us. So when John recounts Jesus' death, listen to what he says. Later, knowing that everything, this is John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of what? The hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. There's the hyssop in action, and then at the end, as it's the day of preparation for the Passover, this day on which all of God's people are going to sit down together and they're going to eat a lamb and remember how God passed over them in judgment. And they want to get on with it. They want Jesus dead so that the bodies can be taken down and, and the land will not be unclean and they can get on and celebrate the Passover. Uh, and so uh, the, the soldiers are tasked with going around everyone who's been crucified that day to break their legs so that they will die quickly. Because crucifixion it basically suffocates you as you drop down like that. And so the only way to stay alive as you're hanging on a cross is to push yourself up with your legs. And eventually people die of exhaustion. So they go around to break the legs. You can't push yourself up anymore. You die of suffocation quickly. But when they come to Jesus, they discover that he is already dead. And so they don't break his legs. One of the things about the Passover that, that we read at the end of chapter 12 is that when you eat the Passover, you're not to break any of the lamb's bones. And this is what John says. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. The thread running all the way through John's gospel is that Jesus is the lamb of God who dies in the place of his people. God's own firstborn dies. And actually, that's the story that Scripture has been telling us all the way through. I'm so sorry, I'm not sure why I'm so emotional. Well, I kind of, you can have a guess, can't you? But <laughs> what God has been pointing the world to through the story of his people is that his plan for rebellious people like us who have said to him, Get out of my universe who have taken all the gifts that God has given and used them for ourselves rather than for the good of others and rather than in worship of God, God said, I'm going to deal with that by sending my son, my own son, to die in your place. That is the story at the heart of what it means to be the church, the story of what it means to be a Christian. There is a judgment day coming, but there is a safe place to be. Jesus. So when Jesus feeds 5,000 people in John's gospel and the people come and say, oh, give us bread again. That was brilliant. The way you made bread in the wilderness, the way Moses did. Jesus says, you'll have to eat my body. 
I'm not like Moses, I'm like the lamb. You're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want eternal life. And that's what this meal that we share together, at the heart of this service, at the heart of the life of the Christian church, this meal speaks of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in our place. This is our place of safety. To eat and drink. It's picture language that points to saying, if Jesus has died for you, you don't have to face the ultimate death of judgment. It's not something that's invented with the coming of Jesus. It's the story that the Old Testament was was telling all the way through, pointing to that moment when God would do something to deal with the problem of the brokenness of this world and the brokenness that lies inside each one of us, where we've been turned away from the God who made us, made up stories to live by, our own myths, that in the end only lead us to decay and destruction. So what does the story of the Passover say to me this morning? What does it say to you this morning? Um, I think what it says in the end is this. God has made a place of safety for you. Will you run into it? Each of us gets to choose. Do you want to be like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart and decided he would face God on his own terms? Or do you want to be like one of those Israelite children who ran into the home knowing that was the only safe place to be? That, in the end, is the question that I think summarizes what's going on in this book. God loves you. He loves you so much that he's given his only son. Will you receive the freedom, the blessing, the safety that he offers? In a moment, as we come together to the table, that's the question on every heart, isn't it? Am I eating this meal as someone who really knows what it is to have the lamb die in my place? That's one thing it says to us. But I think there's another, and I think this is a challenge to me and probably a challenge to most of us. There's a dying world out there Every person you've ever met, every person you've ever passed by on the street, sat next to on the bus, been served by in the shop, or served in the shop, every one of those people will one day have to stand before the living God and give an account for their lives. And God has intervened in human history in such a way that if they will come to Jesus, they will face him as a friend. with all the consequences of every wrong thought, every wrong word, every wrong action, already dealt with. That is the possibility for every one of those people who will one day face judgment. And I think the question that faces all of us is, what are we going to do about that? We have... 
we have a message to share with this broken world that can give life to dying people, surely we can't keep it to ourselves. I mean, that's at the heart of, of, of what we try to do here at BH, isn't it? Is to make that message of Jesus known to this starving world. Here is a lamb who can feed you. To this dying world, here is a lamb who died for you. In September, on, on the 16th, we've got a, a breakfast to which you can invite your friends who don't know Jesus to come and find out. At the end of September, we begin an Alpha course designed precisely so that people who, 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 who have questions can come and ask them and say, you know, is this true? Is this real? Is this an account of reality? This myth that Christians build their lives around, this thing that is the foundation of their identity, is it true? Is this a true story that I could become part of? That's what we're seeking to do in September. That's what we're always looking to do is to, to make that message of Jesus known. And so there's an opportunity. It's one amongst many. But why not be thinking now, who could I maybe invite? Not put them under pressure, not, 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 not sort of try and sort of lever them into the kingdom somehow, but who could you say, well, look, here it is. Why don't you come and see? Because it may be that what you find is bigger, greater than anything you've ever imagined. An answer to the suffering and brutality and chaos of this broken world. One thing that Ben mentioned yesterday and that I want to encourage us all to take really seriously is to make this sharing of the good news of Jesus at the heart of our prayer life as a church family. And one way to do that is prayer triplets. Now, the idea of a prayer triplet is, is basically this. Three people, that's where the triplet bit comes from. Pray, that's where the prayer bit comes from. That makes sense, doesn't it? Three people get together to pray for friends that they would come to enjoy the life that we have found in Jesus. So in the build-up to that breakfast on the 16th of September, in the build-up to our Alpha course, that's something all of us could do, isn't it? To find two friends to pray with and each say, I want to pray by name every week with you for this person. I really long that they could come to enjoy the life that I have found in Jesus. I really long that they could come into this place of safety. You can meet in person, you can meet on Zoom. It's pretty easy these days, isn't it, to get together just for 10 minutes, 15 minutes to get together and pray. If, if you can't think of, of two people you could meet with to pray, do come and speak to me or to Ben or get in touch with the office and we'll, uh, we'll set you up with, uh, with a couple of friends to pray with. But what an extraordinary thing. I mean, can you imagine? It's much easier to imagine it for other people, isn't it? But can you imagine if everyone else in this church was in a prayer triplet? and praying fervently for their friends to come to know this story that is at the heart of reality for themselves, that God has given his own son for a broken world. If it would be great for other people, perhaps it would be great for you too. So do think about that. Let's do that together. Let's be serious together about making this extraordinary message of Jesus' name 
Because every day, Judgment Day gets a day closer, doesn't it? 